Meditation. 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 Depending on the quality of my mind. You know, there's good days and bad days. I mean, I feel like the waterfall of thoughts. Every now and then, a nice calm. I can't think of anything. This is Meditation in the City. The Shambhala New York Podcast. And I'm Dave, your host, your humble host for the podcast. Okay, today on the podcast, I'm very excited because I believe this is Timothy Quigley's first time appearing on the podcast, which is a shame, but uh, but so be it. Uh, Timothy Quigley is a longtime practitioner and teacher in the Shambhala Buddhist tradition. Can you believe he's been practicing for more than 25 years? Oh my God. He's also a professional musician and composer. And this was a talk he gave at our weekly Dharma gathering a few weeks ago. Now, unfortunately, and this sometimes happens, uh, the first few minutes of the talk were not recorded. But Timothy Quigley emailed me uh, some notes, what was uh, missed in that first couple of minutes of the talk, which I'm going to read for you right after I finish saying that you should visit our website, inmydoctrinebala.org, for all of our upcoming courses and weekend retreats. Our introductory meditation weekend, which is called Shambhala Training Weekend 1, Feel Human Again, is coming up the weekend of November 2nd. If you've been listening for a while, if you have been interested in diving in deeper with your meditation, this is a great opportunity. Visit the link on the homepage, nyshambhala.org, for more information and to register. If you can't do the whole weekend, you can at least do the Friday night talk and just see what it's about. Okay, now for Timothy Quigley. But first, I'm going to read for you a couple of paragraphs, so hang in with me. This was, again, a cutoff from the beginning of the talk. It's kind of the foundation of the whole rest of the talk. So, here we go. <clears throat> when asked to teach the weekly Dharma gathering, I was struck by instructions that the venerable Chongu Rinpoche had offered students at a small audience that he held at Marpa House in 1997. Among other sage advice about practice and study, he said to us, I understand that some of you may presently be teaching Dharma, and some of you may be teaching in the future. He implored us, when you teach Dharma, you don't have to reinvent the wheel. You don't have to reinvent the wheel. Ever since that day, I've been haunted by his heart advice. His words have echoed in my being and have become a koan of sorts for me, and something that I feel is an important contemplation for Westerners who teach Dharma. In considering what Dharma is, it is helpful to consider its source. When the Buddha first taught, he wasn't looking for a publishing deal. He taught because people supplicated for him to teach. They saw this incredibly radiant human being and wanted to know what he was up to, what he understood. The result was his teachings on the Four Noble Truths, the truth of suffering, the truth of the cause of suffering, the truth of cessation, and the truth of the path. So basically the Buddha attained uncontrived realization, and then others had the desire to hear about it, for this embodied wisdom to be spoken in this world, for that realization to be expounded upon. This is important because otherwise the teachings would only be held by one person, and then lost when they die. Trungpa Rinpoche's advice showed incredible trust and confidence in simple and unadorned dharma. 
because it naturally arises from innate, awake mind. It doesn't need to be uh, branded. It doesn't need to be rebranded. Um, I, I find rebranding and repackaging very interesting. Like, have you ever had a, a type of tea or a type of coffee that you really like, and then you're looking for it, and it, and it says "new look." <laughs> you're like, "Oh, really? I thought it looked pretty good before." <laughs> so this is what we're talking about. It doesn't really need a new look. That doesn't mean that it doesn't need to understand the present situation of a culture. It must um, adapt in that way. So um, translations have been made from Tibetan into English or Japanese into English. So it's just not like, hey, if you don't get it, good luck. So things have, to, have had to be adapted, but only in the way that they, it was necessary for it to be available to people, but not rebranded re or reinvented. And that has always made me a little bit curious, and I hope this isn't offensive to anybody, about the, the term mindfulness movement. Um, I think it's kind of funny. <laughs> and you may not think it's funny, but mindfulness movement. Why is it moving? <laughs> and where is it going? Uh, maybe it should be still. <laughs> or is it a movement? And what is a movement? And have, have movements endured or, or stood the test of time is my question. And just like fashion, movements come and go and they, they engage the fickle aspect of mind that wants to grab onto something new. So when a movement is happening, it feels as if it's the most important thing, but we know from history that movements come and go, fashion comes and goes. Um, pleated pants um, came and went, and they have they already come back? Are, are they are pleats back? But when a fashion or a movement is happening, it's moving. So it's not it's not intrinsic. It's not based on this deep wellspring of of um, depth that doesn't need to sell itself. So then the question is, how do we invest personally in something that is not fickle, that is true to us and helpful and instructive in our lives? Um, and this could take the form of many traditions. Uh, we happen to be in a, a space that um, is often talking about Buddhism and, and Shambhala, so I'm going, going to talk about it from this perspective. But this could be applied to any genuine spiritual tradition. A lot of it is how we relate to Dharma or how we absorb and assimilate truth or understanding. Um, you could say time-tested understanding. And in order to do that, it's helpful to look at some traditional analogies of a container so it's said that there, there is dharma, 
something that's understood to be very deeply and profoundly true. And then there's us, um, which ultimately are deeply and profoundly true. But how we hear truth is very important. So the traditional analogies of, of a vessel or a container is that we could be an upright container. Have people heard this before? It bears repeating because it's, it's really helpful if you, if you take this with you. Or you could throw it away when you walk out the door. It's, it's up to you. But the upturned container is a, an appropriate vessel, sort of an open vessel. And you could say this is valuable in any experience we have if we meet it fresh, if we meet it with beginner's mind. We don't have an agenda, but we're willing to be receptive. And this is also true of how we relate to each other when you meet somebody new or even somebody you may have become bored with or frustrated with. There's always a fresh opportunity to to hear things afresh. So the open vessel or upright container is able to receive without an agenda. The next analogy is of a upturned container. So you can imagine if, if the teachings were grain, they would just spill over. And this is really um, not anything sinister or, or bad inherently. It's, it's really just, we hear it um, and our life is just going on and we're kind of more interested in other things. So it doesn't really reach, it doesn't land anywhere. It's, there's no place for it to be planted or landed. And then there's a leaky container. So we hear Dharma or we hear something that could be potentially very helpful to us and it just kind of runs away. Um, it leaks out of the bottom. So we don't make any effort to, to revisit it. Uh, or memorize it, or make a relationship with it. It was like, oh, that was nice, and I just, we don't really see it again. And then finally, the, the poisonous container, which you might be able to imagine. What do you think that might be? Does anybody care to comment? Yeah, this is this is like uh, being th threatened by um, something potentially being damaging or undermining to our ego. So we're ready to like get weird with it. <laughs> so we mix it with our projections and our reactions, and any clarity that's being offered um, gets drowned out by by confusion or or our sort of afflictive emotions or reaction to it. Now, what this does not mean is that you just say, hey, great, whatever. You, you just don't ask any questions because part of what we're going to talk about tonight is developing uh, intelligence. So it's not just saying, oh, yeah, I buy this, whatever. Um, just lay it on me and I'll, I'll just follow everybody off the cliff. Um, but at the same time, we're willing to maybe briefly suspend... Uh, things that might prevent us from hearing something that could be helpful. So when something very straightforward and uncomplicated is, is spoken, um, it's hard to unhear in a very positive sense. 
you know, when people talk about the internet and they see something really gross or weird and they say it's hard to unsee, this is uh, more of the positive sense of that. When you hear something really uh, profound, it's hard to unhear. And this could come from anybody, by the way. It could be something you overhear on the subway. It could be from a three-year-old. It could be from a scholar, or it could be from somebody who you randomly meet on the street. So again, there's no ownership. But um, when we hear something true, it resonates in our being in a way that, that it goes beyond sort of the well-trodden habitual course of our way of thinking. It strikes us in some way. So I thought it would be interesting to explore some of the active ways in which we can begin to embody teachings. And the way to look at that is through understanding the three prajna principle. Are people familiar with this term prajna? Okay. Well, don't be scared that it's a Sanskrit word. It simply means best knowing, or um, could also say discriminating awareness. So this is something that we all have, and we begin to cultivate when we begin sitting practice. So just by the nature of holding our mind to an object or, or returning back to the breath, and through our awareness letting us know that we've drifted away, we're reminded to come back to the object of meditation, which in the, in the case of shamatha vipassana is our breath. So from the very beginning of practice, and even pre-practice, there, there is prajna. There's, there's profound and um, uh, very refined prajna, but there's also just worldly prajna. Like we know how to do certain things. We, we know how to read. We actually all know how to do an amazing number of things. It's actually remarkable what the average person knows how to do and um, understand. So the prajna that we're talking about this evening is the prajna that helps us understand reality as it is. Does this sound interesting? Is this okay? Trungpa Rinpoche says, the development of prajna involves the transformation of your state of mind into further cognitive comprehension of things as they are. Shall I read that again? The development of prajna involves the transformation of your state of mind into further cognitive comprehension of things as they are. So there, there are three prajnas, and the first one is hearing. So right now we're all hearing, um, but it's described traditionally like meeting someone who you know and love that you haven't seen in a long time. And you know that, that, that warmth of, of recognition and um, some kind of knowing. Um, so we're recognizing and reconnecting with something um, that we, we know innately. 
So something we already know is rekindled. So from this point of view, when you hear um, teachings, it's already in your being. So it's not like taking something out here and then cramming it into your being. And that's sometimes how we experience um, matriculated education. Do you know what I'm talking about? There are words used like cramming, cramming for a test, right? So th that's meaning, that mean, seems to mean, excuse me, that you're taking something outside and cramming it in, <laughs> which doesn't really sound very nice. So this is more about recognition, recognition and that it's been there from the very beginning. So it's not something foreign. It's already, there's something in our own being that already knows this. And that's why when somebody says something curious and true, it almost tickles our being. Have you ever noticed that? Somebody says something, you're like, oh, hmm. We may even say, I've never really thought of it that way. But somehow, somehow it's familiar. Somehow, somehow we know something. And I'd also like to say about hearing is it's not just your ears, but it's your whole being. So when you hear teachings, you can engage all of your senses, your sight, sound, taste, touch, the way it resonates in your being. So sometimes the way we think of um, absorbing is, is this, this strained way but what I'd like to encourage us as we study and practice is that we could relax and, and let it resonate in our being. So you, the smell of the incense in this room, the way that this, this room feels, is all part of, of teaching. We feel very different at, if we we're at Olive Garden right now. Does that still exist? <laughs> There's some debate. So first prajna is hearing, and the second is contemplating. In Tibetan, the, the word is sampa, not to be confused with sampa, which is a grain that is used to make things, just in case there's any Tibetan-speaking people here. Um, so it means to think about or having thought of it. Okay. So again, this is not taking the matriculated approach of reading lots of books. And this could be a, an encouragement to take maybe a slightly different approach to how we read. Sometimes when we read, we're just getting to the next paragraph or like we're trying to catch up with our friend who reads voraciously. Um, or we see all the books on the shelf out there and we are like, oh, I haven't read that one. I haven't read that one. But what I would like to um, provoke in this situation is the idea that you could understand the microcosm, macrocosm principle. So like you could take something very, very, very small and if you masticate or chew on it and you, you um, drink in the nutrients, there's an entire macrocosm. 
So you could actually take a very small body of information, even a line of something, and let it resound in your being. Let it, um, let it percolate and stay there before moving on. So you could um, take a less greedy ap approach to study where you could actually enjoy it. Doesn't that sound interesting to enjoy study? It's not really part of our culture. It's, it's uh, a lot of times it's it's kind of introduced as a punishing experience. Like, you know, you talk to people in in school. How's it going? Really busy. So much studying, and people look kind of pained. But this is an invitation to relish in it. You know take a bite of it and really enjoy it. And that also addresses the issue of feeling intimidated. Have you ever felt that you read something that um, maybe is above your realization pay grade and you're just like, I don't, I don't get this and I will never get it. Do you ever, or maybe I won't get it for 10 years. You have some future plan of like retirement, you know, leaving the five boroughs and really digging in. Um, <laughs> do it now. Life is very short. We're going to talk about life is very short a little bit later. But, um, <laughs> but it, it could actually be really enjoyable. Um, and the, the urge to just plow through stuff. And I don't mean to be disparaging of that. There's so many great things out there, great books. But, but take, take time with a paragraph. I was talking to my friend, Mr. Schreibman, Mr. Dan Schreibman here, who, by the way, is the glue and the, the pillar of this center right now, um, along with a couple of the other people. So I appreciate that. He was talking about um, going through the Shambhala Sadhana. Maybe you've heard about this. Uh, it's a very poetic text. And just reading a line and and musing about it. So what, is, what does it mean to muse? Um, muse means to, to play with spontaneous energy. So to muse is to let our mind dance with meaning. Let it play with it a little bit as opposed to, okay, got it. <laughs> Next paragraph, check. Um, I'm kind of beating this point to a pulp, so I apologize, but, but I think it's really important, so I feel very passionate about it. And when we muse, just like when musicians play with spontaneous uh, energy, eloquent things become expressed. So eloquence of our mind, the natural eloquence of our mind can unfold when we, when we allow that space. It's sort of like a, a childlike approach. Like we don't know anything and we're reading it for the first time. So then finally, so first was, the first prajna was hearing. The second was contemplating. And the third is meditating, not surprisingly. And this word in Tibetan is gompa. And Trungpa Rinpoche expresses it beautifully by saying, beyond sitting practice alone, you're bringing those teachings into your heart. 
So sometimes this process may not be particularly easy. Sometimes when we um, explore the, the our relationship to reality, our relationship to our own mind, when you get to this level, there there can be some difficulty, and we may not want to see some of the things that we're seeing. So, but somehow this is again goes back to you can't unhear um, things that that are true. <laughs> So we might as well dig into it and stay the course. So this could be a full ranging discussion and, and actually be a week of study just contemplating these three prajnas of hearing, contemplating, and meditating. But I, what I'm interested in, in right now, particularly in the, the culture that we're in, in 2018, is this notion of dharma being part of our being, becoming embodied so that dharma is alive. If it just stays in books and if it's not manifest in our own being and the way that we are as human beings, it doesn't mean, it, it, it's sad that somebody spent that much time um, putting it in books. It needs to become part of us. So. This is where dharma is actually protected. This is how it's protected for, for the future, for future people beyond our lives. This is how it's indestructible. So we're um, getting to that point. Because it's when it's held in someone's heart, it can't be destroyed. It can't be corrupted. It can't be perverted. It can't be um, maligned undermined. So that, in that way, credentials actually don't mean anything. So we have all of these levels, and this is the non-linear part. <laughs> Remember, indestructible dharma and the non-linear path. So we have level one and level two. Have people engaged in any of these things? or any further training, it is necessary that, that we have a path or there's nothing to step onto, or it would be like running alongside a train and never being able to get on it. So it's necessary that there are forms and ways that we travel along the path. So it, 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 that needs to be there. But ultimately you could say it is nonlinear because how you are is beyond credentials how you manifest as a human being. That's said very eloquently um, in the Sadhana Mahamudra, which is a practice that um, is done from time to time. That was written um, by Chugyam Trungpa Rinpoche in a cave in Taksung with um, Richard Arthur, Arthur, also known as Kunga Dawa, um, who actually wrote down these words, which came as a spontaneous um, blaze of insight. Um, and in that blaze, it said, he, he expressed, the kingdom of no dharma, free from concepts, is discovered within the heart. Here, 
there is no hierarchy of different stages, and the mind returns to its naked state. So it is necessary to have a path and a teacher and teachings and lineage, yet you are what you are and people's, what they see is, what you see is what you get, right? So it's like if somebody's like a senior student and they're being a jerk, <laughs> they're just being a jerk. So their rank or our level of study and practice, and that's true for all of us. And I find that really encouraging because then it's like, oh, no matter what's happening, um, particularly difficult situations, how, how you manifest in different situations is only informed by the depth of your practice and your understanding. So you can only kind of draw on that bank of understanding or, or realization. So um, that's an encouragement to practice very deeply so that we can bring to bear in this world in, in difficult situations, which inevitably, inevitably arrive and arise. We arrive in them as they arise. <laughs> we find ourselves, whether we like it or not, in difficult situations. The more that we practice, the more that we steep ourselves in these teachings and in, in, in these practices, the more that we can show up in a situation that's kind of nasty or a good situation. But when we're truly tenderized, I would say ultimately that, that good, good teachings from any source are, are tenderizing. They, they, they make us softer. And the, the Vidyadara Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche said that prajna is very sharp, but the sharper it is, the softer it is, the more tender it is. So the traditional um, analogy for, or, or icon, iconographical image of prajna is a sword, but it's not a sword that's jabbing and poking people with aggression. It's so sharp that it's, uh, you wouldn't know if it was cutting you. So when we're truly tenderized, the, these teachings can, cannot be corrupted. And in that way, we can have trust in that because people are, people are attracted to genuineness when there's some kind of simplicity to somebody's state of being, it's, it's attractive and people are drawn to it because they know it, it's not being cranked up. You could say that other things that are attractive are very alluring. Something of a, a cult of personality is, is very alluring, but somehow um, that sort of thing never endures. It doesn't last.
So the most important and transform transformative or enduring contributions to the world typically are not products of somebody's ego or, or great ideas particularly, or their desire for personal gain, but a desire to want to benefit. When, and when they're coming from that genuine place of wanting to benefit, they, they, they land in, in this world as, as uh, truth. So I guess um, just to conclude, um, I would say that the world right now really, really needs very Xinjianged people. Have you heard of this, this term Xinjiang? It means thoroughly processed in Tibetan. So this world needs thoroughly processed people, who, people who have practiced and studied. So I would like to encourage you, if you're inspired, to, to do that. Um, and that can be a contribution to a cultural shift that has more allegiance to sanity than it does confusion. Like, what if you said your boss or bosses, or maybe you're the boss and it's up to you? I would like to go and sit for a, a month. I want to go and do a datum. I would like to go to this retreat. What if your boss said, Oh, that's great. I fully support you. And I wholeheartedly offer my support. And, and uh, I know that it will be of great benefit to this company and to the future of humanity. <laughs> this could actually happen if enough people were very interested in this and insistent that it was really important. This could be a major cultural shift that bosses would get behind this. And they wouldn't say, oh, that's weird. What? A month? Just by example, um, as a professional musician, um, you know, artists tend to get very obsessive, not just artists, but um, one of the groups of people that tend to become rather obsessive. Um, musicians will get really fixated on a project. And um, in my 20s, I was working with this group, this very fiercely intellectual sort of prog group, prog rock. It was very serious. Uh, um, and I had said to the, this group of people, I'm going to go and I'm going to meditate for a month. And they were all really upset. They're like, oh man, yeah, that's totally going to derail this creative project. We've made a lot of headway. We've got to keep going. And like, if you leave, it's all going to crumble and it's your fault, that would be bad. <clears throat> I knew in my heart that this was important, so I went anyway, and I knew they would be pissed off at me. So I went, and I was gone for a, a lunar month, lunar calendar month, and I came back, and right away I ran into the, one of the, the people who was most upset. And they were like, where were you? Or, or I thought, excuse me, they said, I thought you were going for a month. And I was like, yeah, I've been gone for a month. <laughs> so so that, that's interesting. Like th that, that people, people don't even know when we're gone. <laughs> so when you're considering what you would like to do with your life and what you would like to dive into, um, there's some traditional encouragement. Um, from a book called Training the Mind, which is our 
traditional teachings on Lojong um, by a great being named, named Atisha and their slogans that, that you contemplate and think about in order to awaken your compassionate heart. And uh, one of the slogans, and these slogans have a way of sort of popping up in your mind, but one of the, the slogans that really resonates with me is, this time practice the main points. So what does that mean? Doing good, right? Sometimes it's better to let the masters speak rather than trying to rephrase anything. This time, practice the main points. This time refers to this lifetime. You have wasted many lives in the past, and in the future, you may not have the opportunity to practice. But now, as a human being who has heard the Dharma, you do. So without wasting any more time, you should practice the main points. This teaching is threefold. One, the benefit of others is more important than yourself. Two, practicing the teachings of the Guru is more important than analytical study. Three, practicing bodhicitta or awakened heart is more important than any other practice. So, nobody has ever regretted practicing um, more vigorously. <laughs> so, I've never heard anybody either come back from a retreat and say, oh man, that, that sucked. Or like, boy, was that a waste of time. And somehow, actually, when we take the time to take time, when we take the time to take time, there's more time somehow. So sometimes we get so busy that we think there's no time to meditate. But you have to try it for yourself. So see if that's true. See if on a busy day you can just say, hey, I'm going to practice anyway in this busy, busy, busy city that we live in. We could actually do that. And it's actually not selfish. When we, any act that we make to work with our sanity is an encouragement to humanity. It's encouraging to other people and it's actually contagious. It's a courtesy to ourselves and it's a courtesy to other. And as the, the subway guy says, courtesy is contagious. <laughs> <laughs> So I thought maybe, um, I, I know that I've already said way too much, but um, I thought we could have a discussion about what people are inspired by right now or what challenges they're having with practice and study. Um, and really uh, feel free, because we have a few minutes before we can just 
enjoy food and further conversation. Um, it's I'm much better when I have meditation and yoga in my life and mm -hmm. I have three jobs so I don't make time very often and it's funny because I made the time to come just what you said tonight and there will be more time for other things to happen so thank you oh thank you thank you and the other thing is we can encourage each other that's why have people heard that there are three jewels traditionally in, in Buddhism? There's the, the Buddha as the teacher, the Dharma as the teachings, and then the Sangha as the community. So we can help each other practice. We don't have to just face this difficult and uh, hard to navigate world by ourselves. We can actually uh, call up a friend and say, hey, do you want to sit? And you know what's really fun is if you, <laughs> I did this especially when I first moved to New York, I noticed that a lot of people weren't practicing. So what you do is you make a practice date before you go to dinner. So like you make dinner or going to a, a club or a, a bar second, and then your friend is tricked into practicing <laughs> with you. <laughs> but they won't feel deceived or hurt by it, I, I don't think. Unless you're doing something weird, but I don't, don't recommend that. So, so. Don't be shy. This could be, and if, if you think you shouldn't say something, then you should definitely say it. The question on the table is how, how do we work in this world, this very, very busy world, to deepen? Because it seems to me, and I may be totally wrong, this world needs some people with some real depth real depth of understanding, real wellspring. And somebody has to do it. So how are we doing that? How are we inspired? How do we feel discouraged? Yeah. Um, for the last couple of years, my practice has been this thing called circling, where we, uh, we just meet each other where we're at, essentially, and focus on present time. And, mm -hmm. um, but for some reason, and, and I... I sort of had a minor spiritual awakening coming here in like 2011. Mm -hmm. um, so that was really beautiful. But I really, I've, I've come back to meditating and um, this practice like with gangbusters and it feels really good. And I, I think for me, what inspires me is, you know, and is just meeting myself and, and, you know, encircling would say just to meet what, what's there, mm -hmm. you know, and, um, Right now, I'm also just getting really jazzed about uh, Mark Epstein's book, uh, Trauma of Everyday Life. Mm -hmm. And um, I love how he sort of um, talks about Buddhism from a, like a psychotherapeutic perspective. Mm -hmm. And it's just, I just love it because one of the things that I, it, it, for my journey, you know, was just a clear understanding of um, just being like, like emo deeply emotionally and physically neglected as a kid. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, I thought to myself a couple of months ago, like, well, maybe meditation is a way of like remothering myself. Mm -hmm. And here it is. He's, he's kind of talking exactly to that point. So 
Right. Um, you know, sitting there on the, on the cushion, meeting myself. You know, sometimes I do the breathing and sometimes I like work stuff out. Like I'm ruminating, but it feels really constructive to me. It's, but it, you know, I also try and ruminate in a peaceful way, really, you know, so. Thank you, and actually thank you for bringing up working with other modalities. It's very important, and I think more than ever in history, we're understanding the necessity of becoming familiar with those mod modalities um, to address and meet where we're actually at. So not to feel like, you know, some people actually sit down, um, and actually even meditating is, is not, it's, it's not, it's t too soon actually. And so understanding modalities in which people can work with, with trauma, uh, work with um, family of origin things, is not separate from practice. And it, it's totally, totally, we're understanding more and more that um, I was taking a very traditional approach tonight, very deliberately. And I hope that's okay because I, there is truth in these. And none of the, if you really, really dig into some of the traditional teachings, they do address some of this. The modalities and intelligence have, have continued to increase in working with trauma. So, so that's, I'm really glad that you mentioned that. It's, it's very important that we become familiar um, as a way of understanding the full breadth. If we say we have compassion for all sentient beings, that means beings with a huge breadth of background, you know. So thank you for that. I think one of the things I'm recently thinking about is, I was at this event, which is uh, for a book called Still in the City. Mm -hmm. And I think that's something I'm really thinking about. It's great to sit and meditate, but the majority of time we are rushing through the city, we're very busy through the subway. So that book had some interesting practices, but I would be interested to explore more on how to keep that while even when you're doing your running through the, this crazy uh, city. At first I thought you meant still in this city, like you still choose to live here. <laughs> <laughs> but if you are still in this city, um, I think what you're bringing up is, is stillness. Um, and, you know, Sakyong Mipam Rinpoche has said that um, stillness is, is good for the mind and movement is good for the body. So um, finding ways to find that stillness um, and really prioritize it. I think if you think, I think if you think, <laughs> excuse me, um, If one thinks about it, <laughs> there's so much prioritization on getting things done and, and what is the result of doing. And there's a deep neglect of, of our own being. And, you know, sometimes the, this can take uh, the shape of formal meditation, but sometimes, literally, we don't even just stop um, Sometimes it's because there's a lot of gross things on the sidewalk, and you know I've noticed, um, or or it's it's like really muggy and uncomfortable, and and like you just want to get to where you're going, 
and that's a real thing, and, and that is um, one of the, there are, there are many irritating and exacerbating things about living here. Um, but finding ways to slow down, um, sometimes it can happen in the form of other people. Like you notice somebody that's in more of a hurry than you. Not, not, I'm not saying you, but oneself. Um, and you just be like, oh, cool, go ahead. And that could be a moment of stillness. A moment of stillness could be noticing that, that there's somebody who's more tired than you who needs a seat on the subway. It could be um, actually scheduling. We're so oriented towards schedule that we don't schedule. We, we schedule time for everything else, but not for our, our own sanity. So like, actually Trunk Rinpoche was very into scheduling. He said it's very important because he, he knows how life can get away from us. Or he knew, he could see. So like actually scheduling. When I'm meditating, I can really sit with my mind. But when I'm interacting <laughs> with other people, I feel like there's me on the mat and then there's me in the world. And I don't know how to take, because it's easy when no one's interacting with me to sit with it and I don't have to do anything. Right. But I don't know how to apply that. In easy times, fine, but in difficult times, it seems like, I don't know. I don't know what to do with it. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Does anybody else <laughs> experience that? Uh, an, another way I could say that is, are there any other human beings in the room? I mean, yes, absolutely. Um, I think uh, slowing down, slowing down whatever is happening in our own being first, because we can't, we can't just grab people and be like, slow down. I mean, we could, but that might exacerbate things further. It might incite them. But there's always more time than we think there is. And there's always, speed, it's said, is the enemy of mindfulness. So finding any way that we can come into our bodies any way that we can, for some people that isn't the thing to do, I just want to say, um, for some people it could be coming into the environment, tuning into sounds, tuning, tuning into the sound of the other person. Um, for some people it could be uh, remembering to breathe. And I think just this, by the simple act of asking the question, how can I? And bringing that into, you know, remember we talked about hearing, contemplating, and meditating. So the contemplation is how, how can I enter situations that are in interactions more fully? And holding that as a question in, in, in one's mind and seeing what happens. Because part of, part of prajna and not just to tie this all to what I said previously, which I just kind of did, so I'm sorry for that. But um, not really, but a little bit. We have intelligence about this already. And when there's a question, the, the 
answer is inside the question. So like the very desire that we have to, to um, enter some part of our life more has, um, it's like a lotus flower, you know, and the muck is our discomfort. And somehow this can grow outside of something that feels very um, hard to navigate. Did you want to say more? Yeah, and actually, if if you see me again and you have any discoveries about this, I'd love to talk about it. And that's the other thing, too, is we can help each other understand things. We don't have to figure out everything by ourselves. We're here to help each other. We're alive and here to help each other. Yeah, yeah, please. I just want to really own this and not, like, give you advice. I just found it really helpful to um, just know whatever state I'm in and just own it for myself. Like, wow, I'm really overwhelmed right now, or, oh my God, I'm so tired right now. That's just helped me ground me. Because a lot of times I, want, I think I walk into rooms and I go, oh God, like, whatever, I'm, I'm feeling not in tune, thinking I have to be a different way that I am. So that, that's given me a, like a really deepened, really deepened that ownership of like, no, I'm, I'm not aligned with this room or I'm, I, I am out of sorts. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Did, were people able to, to hear that? So this quality of, of not trying to be somebody else in that moment, but, but tuning into exactly how we feel in that moment. I think that that brings to light a lot of what's happening is when we're evaluating what's happening right in front of us without giving it a chance really. So I think part of what you're saying is, is just being present with what, whatever's arising. So thank you for being here and Viva New York. I wish you all well and uh, please enjoy your practice and study and have fun with that. Don't get too serious. Thank you, Timothy Quigley. Thanks for everyone who listened, who tells your friends about the podcast, who keeps coming back. We greatly appreciate it. Hey, visit our website, ny.chambala.org, for all of our upcoming courses and weekend retreats. If you live in a different city, there's probably a Shambhala Meditation Center near you. Look us up. But if you are in the New York City area, our weekly Dharma gathering is every Tuesday night, where you can hear these talks live and in person. Okay? Later. <laughs>